The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Esther 5, verses 1 through 14. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come tonight to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, and then you can go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. You may be seated. Our children's church is at the 915 service, so if you are a little kiddo, we are super excited to have you in the service with us today. Continue our study of Esther. As you can see, Esther, in this moment, she uh, finally, the, ac- the action in this story comes full circle. It's finally time for Esther to decide who she's going to be. And I think when we know this story a little bit, we can end up thinking, you know, it's not, it's not that big a deal. But I assure you, as we look at this text, you will see somebody who has chosen to live sacrificially instead of for self. And so as you listen to this text, I want you to understand, to ask yourself the same questions. Most of us, it's not all self or all godliness, not all self and not all sacrificial nature. 
But I do want you to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in Esther? Where do you see yourself in Haman? Let's pray to God and ask him to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that you would now be powerfully at work, that you would use your spirit to fill us up with hope. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. One of my top three favorite movies of all time is Braveheart. It's where William Wallace, this nobody from nowhere, ends up leading the Scots against the English army, against the tyranny of England. Part of the story you may remember is that William Wallace finds this lovely lady and he wants to marry her and they get married in secret because William Wallace won't share her with English nobles because at that point English nobles could come and take the bride on her wedding night and William Wallace wouldn't do it and so wouldn't allow that to happen and so he kept their marriage a secret. Well there's a scene where they come and find his wife days after their wedding anyway and to punish Wallace for disobeying the rules for to punish Wallace for moving forward with the wedding in secret, they kill his wife in a gruesome way. And then the next scene, if you remember it, it's the scene where Wallace approaches the fort where the people who have killed his wife are hiding. And do you remember something about the scene? It's this slow ride on a horse with Wallace showing them his hands. I went and looked at how long that scene took. For three minutes and one second, nobody says anything. And it's just this building music of Wallace slowly making his way through town. Now, three minutes in a movie. All the buildup, all the tension. And what's going on in the movie is, is that Wallace is making the decision. If he goes all the way in, if he goes to battle out of revenge for his wife, his story is never going to be the same. The movie is at a turning point. And that's what's going on here in this scene with Esther. The writer is pushing it to the most tense limit. This fickle king who's proven himself a drunk, proven himself a misogynist. He's proven himself uh, angry. He's, he's told the people of Israel that, that yeah, they're just going to die. That's no problem. And now Esther has to summon the courage to go towards this person who already has a troubled relationship with queens. You can just feel the tension. And that's what the author is trying to get you to feel. Trying to get you to notice that there are these moments in our lives when we are called to either live for ourselves to make things more comfortable or sacrifice for the sake of others. And he asks you, where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? I want to look at a few things this morning. I want to look at a godly life, a selfish life, and the subtle subtlety of sovereignty. A godly life, a selfish life, and the subtlety of sovereignty. Is your life aimed at God or is it aimed at yourself? Well, first of all, 
this godly life. Let's give quick context to this. Again, why is she so nervous? Why is this such a significant turning point in the book of Esther? Remember in chapter one, one queen loses everything for not coming when called. Everything. And Esther here is faced with death because she comes when she's not called. Remember, this guy, he's a mean guy. He's erratic. Queen doesn't come, he replaces her. People need to be killed. The Jews, go ahead and kill them. And not only that, it's actually against the law. It says it in the text twice. It's against the law to go to the king, punishable by immediate death. The last time the king was drinking in this book, he sentenced Israel to death. And the time before that, he was drinking in this book, he replaced his ex-wife. So I know we think of it as just kind of march in to talk to your husband. It was against the law for her to do so. Here's the things that I want to show you about a godly life. Some of the things that we notice from Mordecai and Esther. First of all, a godly person can see meaning in pain. A godly person can see meaning in pain. Do you remember Mordecai's words in 4.14? He says, who knows that you have come to the palace for such a time as this? Now I want to tell you something theologically, but I don't want you to bash each other over the head with it pastorally. Theologically, a godly person can see through pain, through brokenness, through sin, through COVID, and say, I have a sense, a belief, a faith that God might yet be up to something. As, as sad and as hard as it is, maybe this isn't the end of the story. You see that beauty theologically that even in the most broken things, like when Joseph is kidnapped by his brothers and Joseph is thrown into jail and Joseph is mistreated and then ultimately Joseph is the head of all of Egypt and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And one who follows God, one who practices of life of godliness can be beacons of hope for other people to say, maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe divorce isn't the final word on your life. Maybe infertility isn't the final word on your life. Maybe singleness isn't the final word on your life. Maybe this sin which you're so ashamed of isn't the final word on your life. Now that's the theological reality, this idea that God yet may yet be at work even though it's unclear. Now pastorally, I want you to be careful with it. That doesn't mean when someone's struggling with singleness or with divorce or with infertility that you go, ah, there may yet be a greater theme here. That's when you love on them and you hug them and you weep with them. And then maybe later down the line as God nudges you, maybe you can speak some truth. But just because something is true theologically doesn't mean that we can just use it as a hammer. Sometimes we have to have nuance and shrewdness, which we'll talk about later. A godly person can see meaning behind pain. The second thing that I want you to see is a godly person demonstrates humility. A godly person demonstrates humility. You see Esther here? She finally agrees to this terrifying reality of going and asking this erratic person to go against his own word that's right he's already written the order go against his own word and to save her people 
And as soon as she's called to this task, she says, Mordecai, go get your people, go fast and pray. I'm gonna get my people and we're gonna fast and pray. The godly person does not see a task and think, oh, I'm up for it. The godly person sees a task and thinks, I am insufficient. I am bankrupt. I don't have it all together. I can't do this on my own and demonstrates humility. Some of you think, well, yeah, I would try and help and serve and love others more, but I'm still struggling with this addiction. I'm still limping from the last time I got walloped by suffering in this life. I, I, I couldn't get, there isn't enough in me to give. That is exactly what the godly person feels like when being called to a task for God. Every time we ask small group leaders, men's and women's Bible study leaders, would you, would you please lead in our church and do this? The response is always the same. Are you sure you want me? See, a godly person operates out of bankruptcy, confident in God's provision, not in their own ability to provide. If you feel like, I can't believe it, but I'm still not enough after all these years of following Jesus, that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel. If you felt up for living for God, I would think you not ready to do so. Stop waiting on your adequacy to serve God. Stop waiting on your enoughness. God calls us to do things beyond ourselves, so if you aren't feeling inadequate, if there's nothing in your life that challenges you and makes you feel inadequate, you might be living too small of a life. A godly life sees meaning in pain. A godly life operates out of humility. A godly life is dependent on others. You see her, she says, I need your help, y'all pray for me. Go and fast for me. She's confident she can't do this on her own. And that's the same with us. We need people in our life to help us to act in godliness. If you don't have anyone in your life that can push on you or love on you or speak hard truth to you in grace, you're not living dependent on others. A godly person is dependent upon others. There is no godly cowboys who are independent and do things on their own. Godly people are always dependent upon others. You also see how shrewd she is. This frees us to be thoughtful and strategic and shrewd. The Bible says that we should be wise as serpents, which is obviously a reference to Eve and the garden where the serpent tricks her. And the Bible asks us to be innocent as doves, so it's saying don't be just like that, but also be wise. It means we have to live in a world like this where this place is not our home, and we have to live in a world with wisdom and nuance. She wears her royal robes. Last time she was dressing up for this guy, she was wearing something that was gonna win a horrible beauty contest. This time when she's dressing up for the guy, she wears her royal robes to remind him, oh yeah, this is who I am. I'm your queen. She delays the ask to the king's desire to build his desire to please her more. She waits in the court instead of just marching down the aisle. She asks for a second banquet request, which shows the shrewdness, this idea that she knows exactly what she's doing, that if he comes to the second banquet, he's almost guaranteed a yes to the response. She shows shrewdness, and we do too. 
As Christians, sometimes it's easy to lack nuance, to lack shrewdness in the world in which we live, to just be ignorant because we're right. And God calls us to more than that, a people that can bless the kingdom without embracing all of the kingdom's philosophies, a people that can be involved in things and not embrace everything. He calls us to be shrewd. But a godly person sees meaning in pain live out of humility. They're dependent upon others. They're shrewd and a godly person is sacrificial. Meaning they act in faith not knowing the consequences. Esther puts her marriage, her palace, her life at risk for God's people. This is amazing. She literally puts herself in the way of danger. Puts herself in the way of danger. She, ultimately, this is for you. So often in life, we operate out of this cost-benefit analysis. I'll go and serve in that as long as it doesn't take the whole day. I'll lead a small group as long as it only goes for a couple months. I'll serve in the nursery as long as it's not too frequently. We do this, if it doesn't cost me too much, I'll give. It's the opposite of Godward sacrificial living is thinking someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. I have to tell you, even in our young church, we're growing, we're booming, and I love that. But even in our young church, it's starting to sneak its way in to our DNA that, oh, I just got here, I don't need to serve. Or I've been serving since the day we opened our doors. I need a break. Somebody else needs to serve. Just this, just this sense of, they don't need me. They've got a good staff. Someone else will do it. What you may not realize is that when you joined this church, you volunteered for an organization whose primary purpose is to focus on others. You didn't volunteer for an organization that brings you options on a platter. You volunteered for an organization that hands you work gloves when you get here. Esther lays down everything. What can you lay down? What can you lay down? Your time, your money, your comfort. What hit can you be taking right now that you could, instead you're just leaving for someone else to take? is the last thing about Esther that I want you to see in the text, and we'll move quickly to Haman. But Esther lives a life, and Mordecai lives a life where there's thinking and believing. There's meaning behind pain. They demonstrate humility and sacrifice and shrewdness. And the last thing I want you to see about her is that she follows God imperfectly. Esther is not this perfect fairy tale princess who gets it all right. In chapter 4, she's worried about her own skin first. She hears about the, the mass genocide of her people and goes, you know they're going to hurt me if I go and do this. She's morally ambiguous. Even though she works in sacrifice, she's still morally ambiguous. And some of you think, I can't be used by God. I'm still not enough. I, I don't have the right motives. I haven't been the perfect person. I'm still sinning. I've been divorced. I've dropped the ball morally. I'm broken, I can't be used by God. And friends, let me tell you, God is exclusively using crooked sticks to draw straight lines. 
you are supposed to feel bankrupt with your hands open even as you do things for God. Esther could have felt imperfect and mixed motive and embarrassed that Mordecai called her on it, but instead she gets up and gets dressed and goes anyway. She sacrifices even though her motives aren't perfect. Well, a godly life shows a vision for people's pain. That God might be at work shows humility and shrewdness and sacrifice. And a godly life acknowledges that it's going to be imperfect on this side of glory. But then you look at Haman, this selfish life. Listen to me as I read for you verses 10 through 12. This is not a likable person. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she is prepared, and tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king." all that he has and it is not enough all that he has fame sons importance influence and one little thing can ruin it one of the ways that you know that you're living for the kingdom of self is that nothing is ever enough he's fickle when he's honored he feels good when uh, when mordecai ignores him he feels terrible And he surrounds himself with this community that says, oh yeah, if he's in your way, just kill him. Where do you go to a group when you are hurt? Do they walk you through your stuff or do they tell you what you want to hear? Some of us have inner circles that never push on us. And if your inner circle never pushes on you, you're more like Haman than you'd like to admit. He's fickle and he's angry and nothing's ever enough. Ian Duguid says this, what are you doing to starve your idols or to feed them? Starve your idols or to feed them. What is it that causes you to be angry at out of all proportion to the offense? Excuse me, to the offense. What is it that makes us feel unusually strong sense of achievement? Our strong emotions are clues enabling us to read our own hearts better. It's this lie, if I only have this, then it will be enough. It's a long told lie. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They've been told by God who walks with them in the cool of the day that they can do what they'd like, they can eat what they'd like, that there's only one rule, that they can't eat from one tree in the garden and where do we find Adam and Eve standing around, lingering around, It's our sinful tendency to long for what we do not have. Where do you see that in your life? Is it money? Is it popularity or reputation? Is it having the kind of relationship that someone else has? Thinking that if I only had this, then I'd be happy. Measuring our lives against one another. I'm not quite there financially. We don't quite have a big enough house. We don't quite go on the right kinds of vacations. I'm not whole until I'm married. I'm not whole until I have kids. I'm not whole until my kids make good choices. I'm not whole, and so on and so forth. It'll never be enough. 
if you interpret your life on what you don't yet have. And you know what the irony of this is. Interpreting, I do it too, interpreting our lives on what we don't yet have. That in the gospel, Jesus says you have it all. For those of you who are trusting and resting in Christ, he says you have a new identity. You're no longer a criminal. You're no longer a sinner. You're a beloved son or daughter. And not just that. I'm going to show you that you're such a beloved son or daughter by sending Jesus to come and rescue you and vanquish death and bring resurrection reality into the world. And not just that. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to encourage you when you're weary, to pray and cry out for things you don't even know that you need, to convict you at times, but then to bring you comfort. I'm going to sustain all your physical and spiritual needs and not just that, actually, I have gone away to prepare a place for you. A place that there is no more sin and no more sorrow, no more death and no more shame, no more hurt. No more mics rolling out of the mic stand. And I'm going to bring you to this place. And it's not just going to be yours in the sense that you get to be there. You're actually going to get to reign over the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. That what used to be true about you, that you were on your own, that you were lost and alone, that you were broken, is now no longer true because you have an identity and you have a father and you have a future and you have a hope. And what he's saying to you in the gospel is you already have everything you need Not just for now, but for that great day. Meaning there is not one iota left that you need in order to be ready for heaven if you're trusting in Christ. What if we as God's people lived out of that reality of not what we might have if we worked harder, but what is already true of us in Christ? How would that change It would free you up. It would free you up to love others, to give away your stuff, to give away your time, to give away the gifts that God has given you because you don't care. You're already a beloved son and daughter of God and you have great things ahead of you. And that's what he's calling us to do. Instead of focus our lives on the things that we don't yet have, he's looking at you in Christ and saying, look at what is already yours, friends. We like that. We want to have it all. Only the best, the fullest, the most longed for. And we don't realize that we already have it in Jesus. What if you began measuring your life in terms of what you could give away instead of what you could get? See, the godly life is full of seeing through the mist and the unclarity and believing something more is happening about living a life of humility and shrewdness and sacrifice. And then this selfish life is about building a kingdom of your own and nothing ever being enough. And then I'll just show you this one piece and we'll close our time. The subtlety of sovereignty. It looks like things are totally out of control. We have put the people of Israel's hands in a madman drunk who hates women. We've put it in his hands. And in Mordecai, this racist who only wants what is best for him. The future of God's people are in their hands. And yet watch. Why do we wait another day in this? What happens? 
Oh, well, interestingly, Ahasuerus hasn't remembered Mordecai yet. And if he had, then that, this dinner would have gone differently. The future would have gone differently. But interestingly, he doesn't remember it yet. Oh, and interestingly, these gallows that are going to be a huge part of the story in the second half of the book, they haven't been made yet. And so there's no one to go hang Mordecai or even Haman. There's nowhere to go hang them, impale them. So you see these little tiny things where it looks like things are out of control, but God is, is moving strategically and beautifully and perfectly to bring hope to his people. One commentator said this, even with all her shrewdness, the king did not have to extend the scepter, but he did. The king did not have to invite a request, but he did. The king did not have to come to the banquet, but he did. The king did not have to insist that Haman come along as Esther had asked, but he did. The king did not have to agree to a second banquet, but he did. The comfort for you and me in that, in a broken world filled with COVID and disappointment, is that we know God is working in subtle, beautiful, little ways to extend and advance his kingdom. We'll close here. Ultimately, this picture is not about you. It's not even about Esther. Tim Keller says it this way, Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I'll perish. He said, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. You hear what he's saying? Esther's risking her life in the palace. Jesus actually gives up his throne room in heaven. Esther thought she might die and yet goes forward reluctantly. Jesus knew he would die and went forward anyway. Esther risked her life. Jesus gave his life. Esther marched across the throne room and received grace and welcome. Jesus marches through the earth only to have his father's door slammed in his face so that the father could welcome us in. Esther saved her people with her spared life. Jesus saved his people with his sacrificial death. Esther's reign ultimately ends. Jesus' reign will know no end. It's a sweet story, but it's ultimately supposed to help you see how better off you are for having Jesus as your king. So we close. Do you want a life of selfishness? building your kingdom and interpreting your entire existence on what you don't yet have? Or do you want to live a life of godliness? A life of vision for people's hurt? A life of humility and shrewdness and sacrifice? Knowing you can give your life away because all you have is all you will ever need for Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's convicting uh, how much we do for ourselves. How much we do just so that other people will see. How much we do to build our own kingdom. But you have set us free. You have made us yours in Christ. 
And I pray that we would live lives of other-centered love. We would live lives of sacrifice, of time, money, and talents. Because we have nothing to be afraid of. There is no loss in us because of what we have in Christ. Would you make that true for us? Even today, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.